and welcome to another uh, podcast at Fulcrum. Fulcrum is the analysis and commentary website of the ICS Yusuf Ishaq Institute. I'm Lee Hock An, a senior fellow with the Malaysia Studies Program. And I'm Francis Hutchinson, also a senior fellow with the Malaysia Studies Program. Uh, we are very privileged to have Harry Jamalodin with us today. He was a three-time member of Parliament for Rimbau, and he served as former Minister of Youth and Sports, Science, Technology and Innovation, and Minister of Health. And he's also a visiting senior fellow at ICS. Welcome, Kyrie. Thank you. Uh, we have many, many topics to cover. Malaysian politics being dynamic, kaleidoscopic, and ever so interesting. So let's just dive in. Start with Amno. Amno has a storied history of figures being cast into the quote-unquote political wilderness. Most illustriously, Mahdi Muhammad, Musa Hitam, and Anwar Ibrahim. Tun Mahadir and Tun Musa returned to Amno and worked their way up to the highest office. Tato Sri Anwar was banished and never returned to the party. He founded PKR. The rest is history. Now, those were different men at different times, but we cannot avoid noticing the parallels with your recent travails, Harry. So let's kick off with this set of questions. What are your plans for the next two to three years? And as we mentioned, of you are running for Menteri Besar in Selangor. Even if that is no longer on the table, what prompted you to consider that position? And in light of the past political wilderness experiences, what are your aspirations for the next 10 to 15 years? Uh, thank you. Thank you um, for having me on the Fulcrum uh, podcast. And thanks for the very, very challenging first question. I have just gone through an extremely tumultuous uh, last six months. Uh, in which um, I started off the, the six months as a health minister uh, in the Malaysian government. And I find myself myself here today as a senior visiting fellow at ICS, um, a former member of parliament and a former minister, uh, lost in the general election and expelled from my party, AMNO. Um, so... The six months that has just passed has given me great food for thought about what um, my political future might look like, or rather the absence of a political future uh, might look like. Um, and I think it's safe to say that um, taking a leap from some of the illustrious examples that uh, you mentioned earlier, um, it's not certain whether the comeback will happen via AMNO or via another polit political vehicle or even at all. And I think um, if I did consider initially coming back during the state election uh, or the, rather the set of state elections that are about to take place, um, I think I can say with now 95% certainty um, that I would uh, probably sit it out um, and the big reason is, I think, two two major reasons. One is I cannot quite find a good fit um, for me to join a political party now. And I think, uh, as I mentioned uh, during my seminar, uh, not many politicians are given a second chance to choose a political party. And you want to make sure that your choice counts and it's not something temporary or fleeting. Um, and uh, I don't think that I have uh, enough of a perspective on the existing political parties to uh, make a choice now. 
uh, and simply by virtue of not having a political platform that pretty much rules me out from uh, the state elections as independent candidates don't fare particularly well, especially at the state level. Um, second is is more of a personal choice. I think having gone through the, those uh, tumultuous six months, um, it's good to re recharge. It's good to take a step back. Uh, it's good to spend some time at ICS. Um, it's good to also uh, pursue uh, other endeavors. I do some corporate work now. Um, I do some media work. I have a podcast of my own. Um, and uh, I think you should only go back into politics when you have clarity of thought and purpose about what platform you want to be attached with and not uh, for the expediency of choosing a platform simply because you want to contest at the next available elections. And you've been frank and outspoken about UMNO's current state, and you've been critical of Zahid Hamidi's presidency, as well as the party leadership's decision to seek pardon for Najib. You seem to be you know, offering constructive criticism. Are you hopeful at all that the party can change and pivot towards being more principled and forward-looking? I think it can only change once there's a clear rupture from the past. And I don't use the word rupture lightly, but it has to be a rupture, not just a break, because as much as we think that we have broken from the leadership of Najib Raza after the last uh, election, general elections in 2018, uh, but much of his legacy uh, remains. Uh, in the form of uh, warlords, in the form of his supporters, and also in the form of Zayed Hamidi, who was uh, Najib's chosen uh, successor. So there really needs to be a rupture in a sense that um, these individuals uh, who represent either the present leadership or the power behind the present leadership um, need to really exit stage right or left uh, and exit properly. Um, and until and unless that happens, you're not going to see this sort of reforms within AMNO. As I've explained that in AMNO, there is a, a cult of the presidency and the cult of the presidency puts uh, and centralizes a lot of power, uh, both official, legal and ostensible uh, persuasive powers within the presidency, which leads to a very, very servile and obsequious uh, party membership. And until and unless there's a new leader who's willing to challenge that and curb their own, his or her own powers as the president, then you're not going to see real change. I mean, I'm vocal uh, simply because of one fact, uh, that um, after having presided over the most disastrous elections in AMNO's history, left with 26 seats in parliament, uh, there is no accountability by the president. And that sort of brazen, uh, brazen uh, irresponsibility can only take place in a party which has institutionalized this cult of the presidency and to save the president at all costs, regardless of what the uh, facts on the ground are. Um, let's pivot a little bit to uh, questions of uh, policy and uh, ideology. Um, you have advocated for moderate politics and centrist uh, policies, and um, you've said that AMNO has uh, led Malaysia from the middle, and that has uh, served the country well. So now in the wake of uh, GE15 and the Perikatan opposition and a depleted AMNO, what 
is the future of moderate politics and centrist uh, policies? And please take your time to expand. And this is a very you know, broad uh, sweeping uh, question on economic policy. But of course, there will be a lot of interest as well from the perspective of race and religion. Of course, when we talk of uh, UMNO's position from the center, um, it does not mean that uh, that position is devoid of uh, the politics of ethnicity and the politics uh, of religion. UMNO uh, has uh, its own raison d'etre, of course, is uh, to ensure uh, that uh, the Malay community, uh, the Muslim community, as well as the nation at large, um, is uh, there's advancement for for all three uh, buckets, um, but um, I would always argue that whilst Amno's politics uh, is uh, racial, um, in a sense that uh, there's a clear uh, agenda for the Malay community and the and the Muslim uh, Umar in Malaysia, uh, but uh, it has uh, never been uh, racist. Uh, so that's the fine distinction. And uh, and this is a reality of Malaysian politics. Many people have come to me and said centrist politics should surely be politics that is devoid of race altogether or ethnicity altogether or religion altogether. Uh, and my simple answer to that is that that would be unrealistic because uh, Malaysian society, whether it's the Malay community, Chinese, Indian, uh, Kadazan, Iban community, uh, will always, almost always resonate with issues which are important to their individual communities. And this is not mutually exclusive with having a, a peaceful Malaysian uh, political system and a peaceful Malaysian society. Uh, that's, I think, the complexity of Malaysian politics and society, which uh, Malaysians are used to. We can at once be advocating for the advancement of the Malay community, the Chinese community, Indian community, Kadazaniban community, but at the same time, uh, understand that it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game and that uh, it can all uh, square nicely with national unity and, uh, of course, development for, for all Malaysians. So I do believe that there is still that huge room in the center of the spectrum for uh, a party to occupy. Now, with UMNO having been seriously uh, damaged uh, and its support depleted at the last general elections, um, it remains to be seen whether Prikata National can play more of that centrist role, or uh, it uh, continues to drift to the right from time to time, uh, and the line between ethnic uh, concerns uh, becomes uh, more um, racist or more exclusivist uh, or more ethnocentric uh, politics that is of um, perceived uh, that is of perceived threat to others. Uh, and it is a fine line, and it's a line that sometimes is very blurry because once you do speak about ethnic concerns and religious concerns, uh, then obviously the line from what is legitimate expectations to the line where it is perceived as being a threat to other communities can become very blurry. And it's something that AMNO has always worked on. Sometimes we stay on site, sometimes we are off site. Uh, but um, the tendency for Prikata National so far. Uh, has to uh, has been where they have uh, tended to drift more towards the the the, the more concerning uh, form of identity politics rather than uh, one that 
mirrors or responds to the legitimate expectations of the Malay community. It's one thing, for instance, in Parliament saying that, you know, we want to see more Malay SMEs uh, getting support in terms of grants and loans uh, to a more exclusivist message uh, of saying that, you know, uh, we should um, curb uh, the, the the support given to other communities. We should question the amount of money that's been given to uh, Chinese independent schools. So you can see where the line is there. One is a positive affirmation of legitimate expectations, and the other one is a, is a direct uh, questioning of uh, assistance perhaps given to other communities. Can I just quickly uh, follow up on that and uh, about the current administration, the Unity Government, uh, Anwar Ibrahim administration? I mean, how do you see them negotiating this at, at the moment? You know, they they they, they have had decades-long stances, right, about need-based policies and, and coming from multi-ethnic parties and, and, and so on. And yet, you know, they're kind of in a bind having to be consistent with that, but then also address uh the uh concerns of especially the, the the malay community how are they doing in, in striking that balance so the short answer to that is that they're not doing that well or as well as they uh, could be doing and that's been reflected by some of the comments that i made during the seminar as well as um, survey numbers that hopefully will be published uh, very soon uh, to say that uh, the malay support for uh, Anwar and for Pakatan Harapan, although it has increased since the last uh, general elections, uh, but it has not been uh, decisive uh, in a way that perhaps if you were to have general elections tomorrow, um, Anwar would be able to get the biggest share of, of Malay support uh, from the community. Um, and that's largely because I think uh, the Malay political psyche or the Malay political worldview um, has been used to having Malay leaders who are quite explicit uh, about the Malay agenda, so to speak, uh, in a sense that, yes, when Anwar speaks of uh, a needs-based policy, he always uh, qualifies that by saying that when I help the poor based on need, uh, the biggest beneficiary of that assistance program will be Malays, simply because uh, amongst the lower income group, the Malays are uh, the biggest numbers. Uh, the biggest number of uh, people within the lower income group are the Malay community. Um, but that's in, not enough for the Malay political worldview or psyche because they they can't uh, appreciate that nuanced uh, view, one. Uh, and secondly, they would prefer a Malay leader who explicitly says, yes, I will help everyone regardless of poverty, but I have a clear Malay agenda. And following from on from that, it's not just about needs-based uh, Politi uh, needs-based policies uh, in in the the uh, the Malay community, um, and I'll give you an example. So when Anwar speaks of poverty eradication, that's that's a no-brainer. It's needs uh, needs-based regardless of of ethnicity, but within the Malay political or Malaysian political economic uh, institutions, there are so many agencies that have been created to assist with the advancement of Malay. Uh, economic development that has very little to do with poverty eradication or need. This, you're talking about established Malay businesses um, who want to scale up from perhaps uh, a medium-sized business to a public listed company uh, or to becoming uh, even uh, an international company. That's not really needs-based, is it? I mean, that's, that's really uh, advancing those who have already uh, penetrated the middle class. 
so the narrative of need space and, and poverty eradication and helping the poorest and therefore uplifting the Malays as a result of that doesn't quite wash there. So that really needs an articulation of a Malay vision, which I don't think Anwar has ever, uh, ever done. And I've always questioned uh, Pakatan Harapan, Pakatan National, uh, I mean, Pakatan Harapan and PKR uh, saying that, uh, yes, I completely understand your your views on a needs-based approach. That's something that is um, that we can all agree upon. But what about uh, the, the post-NEP uh, extension institutions uh, that exist, that have nothing to do with needs-based policies, that are there to assist the Bumiputra commercial class, the professional class. Uh, so that's something that's lacking. And that's something that always lights the fire uh, under the, the Malay community uh, by by demonstrating a leader that has a plan uh, beyond uh, needs space poverty eradication. And that's what some something that I think is still missing with Anwar. And sorry, just the last point. It's not that he's not, uh, it's not that he's, this is alien to him. He presided over a lot of this in the 1990s mm-hmm. when he was Minister of Finance. So he knows exactly what uh, what is required. Your latest uh, Fulcrum article of the 12th of April touched on Pakatan Harapan's difficulty in shoring up Malay support in general, but especially for the upcoming state elections. And I mean, we've been citing research done by some of us from ISIS, looking at the percentage uh, of Malay support that Pakatan Harapan got in G15. So how do you think Pakatan Harapan in general and PKR in particular can expand their attraction among the Malay community, number one? And number two, what are your thoughts on what would be a realistic target of the Malay vote in terms of proportion? 30%, 40%? Yeah, so I think it comes back to that clear articulation, uh, which uh, is still lacking. And I know that Anwar must be at pains to um, decide whether or not he tries to articulate a, a more uh, a more general uh, vision for the Malay community, because I'm sure that he's very wary that um, that goes against uh, some of his um, some of his own uh, personal projection over the last few years. Um, as well as perhaps even jeopardize his strong support amongst the non-Malay community, which he uh, enjoys almost unchallenged as far as the Malay national leader is, is concerned. Um, so I do think that it starts with that. Um, and um, I do want to clarify my point. It's not just about you know helping uh, or having uh, programs and a vision for big Malay businesses. Uh, it's also you know your Malay working class who are not below the poverty line. And this is the majority of, of people in Malaysia. So what uh, what are the special programs for them? Um, it can be couched in, in non-ethnic uh, terms, uh, but you know that reassurance is very important. And, and as someone who's been involved in Malaysian politics for more than 20 years, I, I do understand that the Malay community responds to that kind of uh, branding, that kind of uh, reassurance that comes with a with a special focus, and and you can see that from Mahathir's time, last time, and and even through uh, to to Najib's time, who presented himself as as more liberal, but clearly had a section in every budget for the Malay community, which interestingly Anwar didn't have uh, in his first budget. Um, so I think uh, Anwar has to reconcile that, has to figure out, you know, how can I um, be uh, more to everyone. Uh, 
uh, at the same time. And I, perhaps he's wary because that was a, a constant criticism in his career that he tried to be everything to everyone, um, much like the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, but I think, you know, in order to address his Malay problem, his Malay dilemma, so to speak, uh, he, he does have to stretch a bit and, and try to cover, cover the spectrum. Um, and by doing that, and by demonstrating as well on the ground that um, they are no less capable of representing Malay constituencies, so your suburban constituencies, your semi-rural constituencies, I think that will go a long way in convincing Malays that they can support Pakatan Harapan, and Pakatan Harapan will uh, will safeguard their interests. So, for instance, it's very important that Anwar sits down with partners like DAP, who have traditionally been used as a lightning rod uh, of criticism uh, in the Malay community, uh, that DAP members of parliament, DAP state assembly people, uh, are, are seen to be on the ground, serving all communities. So, very, very uh, basic example of having your DAP member of parliament uh, whether they are Chinese, Malay, or Indian, especially if they're non-Malays, um, being seen on the ground and helping the, the local mosque, uh, the local um, Muslim community, uh, that allays a, a lot of fear, and that can have uh, uh, that can be amplified, of course, uh, by saying that look, uh, you know, all these preconceived notions of DAP and and Pakatan Harapan are not true. Uh, so it starts with um, Anwar's own vision. And was own narrative or Malay narrative, so to speak, and not be shy about that Malay narrative. I think sometimes Malays are frustrated and they feel that Anwar is almost embarrassed uh, to to talk about the Malay agenda, but talk about it in in ways that are not threatening, that are inclusive, that are uh, national uh, in nature, uh, but also on the ground to ensure that your weakest or perceived weakest link, like the AP members of parliament. Um, are seen to deliver on the ground. So if you can successfully demonstrate that over the next uh, two or three years, and I don't think the, the Malay share of support will dramatically increase at the state elections because the time frame is too short. And as many people have said, um, I disagree with the term green wave, but there's certainly a PN wave going on and that, that those ripples will still be felt uh, at the state elections. But what Anwar should target would be at least, at least, 30% uh, of the Malay vote uh, by the next election, if not 40% of the uh, Malay vote. And that's not easy uh, because um, it's uh, trifurcated right now between Barisan National, uh, Pikata National and, and Pakatan Harapan. So 30 is a good, good uh, target. So state elections are coming up, including two states uh, that, that you will know very well, Negri Sembilan and uh, Selangor, <laughs> former home and I suppose yep. new uh, political base. Uh, how do you see the PH uh, BN Unity government uh, playing their cards and strategizing their state al seat allocations and campaigns, especially in, in these two states, Selangor and Negri? And uh, how will you characterize uh, PHBN's uh, chances of making inroads in the northern states? So let's start with the northern states first. I think it would be uh, a landslide win uh, for Brigata National, in particular Pass, uh, in, in Tringanu, Klantan, and in Kedah, uh, for the simple reason where, uh, for, for the simple reason that I think those steps that I mentioned about uh, Anwar's confidence building measures. Uh, in the Malay community 
hasn't taken place yet. Um, and I think there is a general rejection of both AMNO and Pakatan Harapan amongst uh, Malays in those states. Familiarity with PAS, um, I think despite uh, the best efforts of uh, Pakatan Harapan in demonstrating that there are water problems in Kelantan and Kedah, infrastructure problems in uh, in in the northeastern crescent, um, but voters there are not biting and saying that you know this is uh, largely uh, the legacy of underinvestment from Putrajaya uh, all these years uh, into the northeastern states. Uh, and therefore, we're quite happy uh, to continue to give our support to PAS and to uh, Prikata National. So I think um, status quo in, in those three states. The only question is if it's going to be a wipeout, total wipeout for AMNO, just zero. Uh, and uh, I think it's safe to say at this point in time that Klantan uh, will be close to a wipeout. Uh, Tringanu has naturally been a swing state. Uh, they, they, they've they oscillated from PAS to AMNO, AMNO to PAS. Um, since uh, 1999, uh, but the last election bucked that trend and PAS has entrenched themselves uh, in Tringanu and uh, there's no strong uh, alternative leader in Tringanu from AMNO or from uh, PKR for that matter. So uh, I think it's going to be quite disastrous for uh, PHBN in Tringanu as well. Uh, Kedah has been a frontline state, uh, largely due to the uh, the polemic surrounding the Menteri Besar, who's uh, been singled out by Pakatan Harapan supporters as an object of ridicule, uh, but who has taken it on the chin and actually turned it into his advantage. And I think he will uh, deliver a resounding win for Pakatan National in Kedah. Um, my view is that uh, Penang Island will stay status quo uh, due to the demographic nature of the Penang state seats as being majority Chinese seats strong supporters of DAP and Pakatan Harapan. However, um, five seats or more in the mainland will fall to uh, Pakatan uh, National, and this will track with uh, uh, general election results where seats like uh, Kepalabatas, uh, Paklas old seat, Pematang uh, Pau, Anwar's old seat, uh, fell uh, to, to past candidates. So I don't think the ground has shifted significantly in the last six months. Uh, for that to be uh, safe, Pakatan Harapan seats anymore. Now, the big question is, of course, uh, Selangor and Lubisimilan. Um, now, having looked at the numbers and you know, even accounting for 50% of a shift from Barisan National to Prikata National, uh, simply because a lot of uh, Barisan National AMNO supporters uh, will not continue to support AMNO or will not give it to Pakatan Harapan, they'll throw their votes to Prikata National, which is what happened in GE. Uh, even factoring that in, that's not enough for Prekata uh, National to go over the top and win either state. So I would call it a status quo uh, in, in both Slango and Lubisimilan, but I would say that Prekata National will make some inroads into, into Slango uh, from their present position. They may get more than uh, 10 seats if, if uh, things are aligned properly. Now, the other question that was asked was how the seat allocation will take place. This is an interesting question because um, Obviously, unlike uh, the present unity government, this time around, it will be a pre-electoral arrangement uh, in a sense that they will go into the election and decide that it is a two-cornered fight, BNPH versus Britannia National, rather than a three-cornered fight, it will sort it out after the elections and will come together in a, a post-electoral arrangement. So it's a pre-electoral arrangement and they're having a convention uh, sometime later this week uh, to formalize uh, all of this. 
Um, so the the position from Pakatan Harapan is that UMNO uh, status quo, meaning you stand in seats in which uh, you won, uh, which will leave UMNO with, I think, something like three, maybe in Slango, um, whereas uh, UMNO has designs for up to 15 in, in, in Slango. Uh, but um, Pakatan Harapan also fairly says, what basis would you want to claim those 15 seats? Because uh, let's be serious and let's uh, let's go on the basis of the past election results. Now, Zahid Hamidi, president of AMNO, has said we can't use uh, previous election results. We have to use something else. And he's not quite said what that something else is. Um, so it remains to be seen how they divvy up the seats. Um, I think much the same in the Greece Milan as well. They'll go for status quo, which will mean that if the status quo also remains in the election, uh, PKR will become the Menteri Besar. Slango, um, if uh, the only question is not so much the seats, the status quo, but the seats that were contested by uh, by Besatu. So those seats now uh, are up for grabs because in the past, Besatu was with PH, uh, was with uh, What's with PKR at PH? It's all a bit complex. So now that Basatu is out, then uh, Barisan National and and uh, Pakatan Harapan will have to decide who stands in those Basatu seats. Now there's been some indication of a compromise saying that Amno will get the seats that they want, not many in Slango, and Amno can have uh, first dibs on the Basatu seats, which will also be an uphill task uh, because it's likely to still stay with Pakatan National, Basatu uh, now with Pakatan National. So that's the lay of the land. Uh, unless UMNO can uh, demonstrate that they are strong on their own and that they bring value into Slango, I don't think PKR will budge very much. Now, the big X factor here is uh, the speculation around my good friend, now the Minister for Investments, uh, International Trade and Industry, uh, Tinku Zafrol, will he contest in Slango? Uh, it's likely that he'll contest in Slango for the simple reason that his uh, political... Uh, clock runs out in three years. He's a senator and he's only got uh, uh, two and a half years left on the clock. And if he doesn't move to a state seat, that means he will no longer be a minister uh, in the second half of this parliamentary term. So speculation is rife that that is the big bargain in place where Amno accepts perhaps less seats than the 15 that it imagines. But Zafrol is given a, a safe seat and Zafrol will be one of the names uh, given to the palace for consideration if the NPH wins uh, for the Madri Basar of Slango. That's an exclusive. <laughs> Thank you. Um, in your first fulcrum uh, of March 8th, you gave the 10th Prime Minister, Anwar, a good passing grade. Beyond the state elections in the second half of 2023 or even 2024, what do you see as his main opportunities and pitfalls? What sort of critical junctures could there be that could either increase his, shall we say, staying power or decrease it? So I gave him a good passing grade because um, he managed to do something that was extremely difficult, which is to cobble together uh, uh, an arrangement uh, now called the unity government. And he was able to keep it intact. And, and I don't think we should um, underappreciate uh, that, that, uh, that achievement. It required a lot of compromise, it required a lot of wisdom, and it required a lot of uh, political skill, which only I think Anwar could have done. 
Um, so on that basis, uh, I I, I uh, have given him a strong passing grade uh, for the first few months. Now, of course, once we get past the state elections, and I will categorize the state elections as a, as a mini referendum, um, simply because this is the first time that voters will be able to choose for PHBN. Previously, it was a post-electoral arrangement, but now since it's a pre-electoral arrangement, it's the first time you're gonna test the support for this arrangement. Uh, so it is a it is a referendum for this arrangement, BNPH, uh, BNPH, and to see whether or not there's longevity for the next election. So both uh, PKRPH and BN will be looking to see whether or not this is an arrangement that could be uh, an arrangement that lasts for the next GE. Um, so once this is done, then uh, the the benchmark for Anwar's uh, performance. Uh, we'll have to shift to other things. So I think the first thing is uh, keeping the government intact, passing grade. Next one is the state elections to see how well he does, to see the acceptance of this arrangement and to see the early acceptance of his of his uh, government. Of course, six months is a bit early to draw conclusions, but uh, unluckily for Anwar, there are six state elections and you can't tell voters, uh, don't judge, uh, don't make a decision based on Anwar's performance. Of course they are. It's the first test. And to them, they're not going to say it's six months, they're not going to say it's uh, three years. They're just going to say, I have a chance to vote. And part of the reason for, for choosing will be Anwar's government's performance. So once he's done with the, the second hurdle, which is the, the state elections, uh, then he needs to get down to the brass tacks of actually uh, demonstrating that he can make the sort of reforms that he wants to. A lot of things have been KIV, uh, have been put on hold simply because of the calculation of the state election. So if there are reforms that he has put on hold in terms of the economy, for instance, uh, fiscal reforms, uh, to looking at uh, increasing government revenue, perhaps the introduction, reintroduction of uh, value-added tax or consumption tax, looking at uh, pension reforms, looking at rationalization of subsidies. These are things that have been kicked down, the cans that have been kicked down the road simply because of state elections. Now, after the state elections, no more excuse. Uh, the general elections are four years away. So really, uh, the next uh, the next uh, grade or the next um, uh, test for Anwar will be once uh, he's safely through the state elections. And if my prediction comes through, which is status quo 3-3, three, three, uh, then he really uh, uh, must demonstrate that he has the political will to make these changes. And if he doesn't, uh, then obviously um, that, that, that will be a wasted opportunity. Could you quickly address this question as following up on the last uh, two that you've talked about, which is uh, some PH leaders, right, have said words to the effect that they want to strengthen AMNO, and obviously strategically, right, P, uh, the the coalition, this is very broad uh, coalition, does need uh, that or the perception, the belief remains that we need a strong Malay and uh, Malay party. Uh, so, but uh, from what you did, what you shared about your the outlook for the state elections, they're not really going to budge as far as the seats. So in what ways do you think that they will proceed with this sort of strengthening uh, UMNO as, you know, a, a key uh, component of the end, UMNO is a key component of the, of the coalition? So they won't budge, uh, in a sense, they won't budge out of the seats that they want, PH1. And those are largely the urban seats and the suburban seats. Uh, in in Slango uh, and also in in Luis Milan, 
what they want to see now is whether AMNO can bring value in AMNO's traditional strongholds, and that's your rural seats. Uh, that's the test. Uh, so, you know, for PH, um, and if I'm Anua or if I'm in PH's shoes, uh, testing AMNO is not giving them a safe urban seat where they will ride off the back of PH support and, and get a, a, a free ride to victory. Uh, testing them is to see if they can reclaim the seats that they have lost uh, to Prikata National. So I, I do believe that PH is testing UMNO now. They will they will have a better view of this after the state elections to see if UMNO is competitive or once again competitive uh, in their traditional strongholds. Uh, but if UMNO, uh, again, as I said, if it's a wipeout for UMNO, then there will be some serious uh, thinking going on within Pakatan Harapan to see whether or not uh, they will continue to partner with AMNO. Because let's remember that the reason why they are in bed with AMNO now is not just for the short-term instrumental gain of forming the government and Anwar becoming prime minister, but because they want to cross the line at the next election by having a Malay party, a Malay vehicle that can win your rural seats. That's traditionally AMNO strength. But we know for a fact now, after the general elections, that AMNO... Uh, failed at that. Of course, they have 26. That's that's a small number. But Pakatan Harapan must be hoping that AMNO can deliver at least 40 to 50 seats. And if the gen if the state elections show that uh, it's a wipeout from AMNO, then uh, you know Pakatan Harapan has to ask themselves the the very very difficult questions. Yes, thank you for delivering us the government. Thank you for making Anwar prime minister. Uh, but are you really able to add value to us or is AMNO as presently led and constituted um, going to be a liability for us? Thank you for that. Uh, now we're heading to uh, wrap up now and uh, it would be appropriate to end with a question that is about more uh, very forward looking and I think addressing the, uh, the whole mix of the kind of thoughts and emotions uh, swirling around Malaysia. This, you know, there's a, a unique blend of hope and despair, I think, in these times. Optimism about the unity government, but there's also pessimism uh, about compromises made and a sharp division between this broad governing coalition and uh, peninsula or Malay opposition. How do you make sense of the country's outlook? And in what areas is Malaysia heading in the right direction? And what areas is Malaysia heading in the wrong direction? I think we're at a time uh, of, of great uh, transition. Uh, uh, because of the the, um, the shifting uh, political landscape. Um, now, we're not certain which political configuration will hold uh, until the next uh, general elections and post-general elections. We're not quite sure what political configuration will emerge from that. Uh, we're not sure which coalition or the combination of people uh, or groups or coalition which will form the next government. And that obviously is, uh, there is a distinct disadvantage to that because it calls into question political stability. But I would prefer to turn that on its head and say that, you know, this is a transition. This is a new Malaysia. And this is a time for um, the government as well as the opposition to support the strengthening of institutions, uh, knowing full well that um, political parties may end up getting at best a plurality of support, not a majority of support. Um, that's where everyone has to work together to say that uh, when there is a situation where there's only a plurality of support, um, the institutions 
safeguard against political instability. And those institutions can be laws, can be regulations, can be parliament, can be a good relationship with the, with the palace, understanding that these are the lines uh, and these are the responsibilities of, of the palace and of the political system uh, and the, the institutions uh, uh, of uh, civil society. Um, so I think that's that's a positive because uh, it's it's the maturing of of the Malaysian society, uh, and to show that uh, the Malaysian political system is resilient enough uh, to continue and to be able to form governments uh, in a stable manner, regardless of whether someone wins a majority or wins uh, a plurality. Uh, so yes, one can view it as an extension of political instability, but for me. Um, in a in a hotly contested political um, system, uh, I think it's better to focus on 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 institutions, on the strengths of the civil service, uh, on the on the strengths of um, of making sure that uh, regardless of what the outcome is, uh, that there is an understanding that uh, everyone is committed towards uh, stability and the rules are clear to to everyone uh, that. Um, Parliament is the place where you test uh, your majority and your support. Uh, and we've put things in place like the anti-hopping legislation to make sure that things are uh, a bit more stable. So I do feel that, yes, there is great trepidation when one looks at the, the, the political system. I don't foresee that there will emerge a party, at least in the next political cycle, that will score an outright win um, for now. Uh, and because of that, I think people should uh, focus on on deepening and strengthening those uh, those institutions. Um, and this speaks to my other concern, which is uh, more economic and regional, uh, in that Malaysia deserves to play a much bigger role uh, regionally. I think we have traditionally punched above our weight, uh, but a lot of that has been jeopardized because of the political instability of the last uh, five years. And many observers value Malaysia's uh, calming presence in the region, um, together with uh, other countries, uh, some of the major countries in ASEAN. And um, I think that can only take place once you have clarity and certainty politically, uh, even if you don't have an upright winner. And also for Malaysia's place economically, uh, without um, having a, a prime minister and a government with a clear narrative about his economic vision, uh, then we will be on the losing end of an increasingly competitive uh, ASEAN economic landscape. Thank you very much. Uh, it has been uh, really, really comprehensive. We've looked at national level issues. We've looked at state level issues. We've looked forward in the immediate term, medium, sorry, immediate term, medium term, long term. And we've also looked within UMNO. We've looked sort of a little bit more broadly at, Amer uh, at Malaysia's political pan panorama. And so it really has been a very enlightening for us. Thank you very much for joining us for this session of Follow Problem Podcast. Thank you.